as we have been, but today is our last day in the book of Jonah, um, so we'll be finishing up um, the series uh, Pursued by Grace. And uh, if you'll turn to Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to read together starting at verse 5 and going to the end of the book. So stand with me in the honor of reading God's word as we read the book of Jonah, 503, if you're following along in the pew hymnal, um, number, page number 503, um, Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Um, Tony, come up and I'll pray with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, for your faithfulness to us in this series. Um, in this book of Jonah, and in Tony's faithfulness as he's preached it to us, Lord, um, just again, as you have been, um, be with him today. Um, let his spirit, let your spirit fill him and fill us all as we, as we continue to plunge into the depths of your goodness, Lord. We love you and we pray all this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Yeah, here we are. Um, so I like to do this whole thing, you guys know by now, where I ask a question and then I get responses from you because it's fun to see how you guys feel about certain things. So um, feel free to shout out at me your feelings. Um, how do you feel about cats? Oh, see, I've got some people making heart signs, and I'm pretty sure... Uh, that Derek made a death threat. Um, so, how about how about how about dogs? Oh yeah, yeah. We got we got some we got some people on the fence, but most people like dogs. So, um, I'm a cat person. I I hearts just like May for the cats. Um, I love cats, and I am not a huge fan of dogs. And it's funny, whenever you tell people that you're a cat person, they immediately, like, it's like a part of them starts to hate you. <laughs> Just desperately hate you. And you, you find out really quick that, you know, that there are people in the world that are just against you for the opinion that you have. I've also found this out, um, I... I I was born and raised a Cubs fan, for you, you baseball people. 
And ever since I moved to Missouri, like, I'm getting pity looks, all right? Ever since I moved to Missouri, if I wear a Cubs hat, like, hostility comes out. You know, you guys almost never win a World Series, like, finally last year. But people are like, you're losers. Like, Cubs fans don't already know that. Like, just hostility comes out. Um, what are you against? What are things that you're just against? Things that you feel strongly about? Um, it's almost a national hobby of ours to define ourselves not so much by what we're for, but the things that we're against. And so there are people in this world that will push you to join their bandwagon, to be against something, right? We see this in sports, as I mentioned before. Um, but the place that we see it most viciously probably is in, in politics. Now, preacher's not supposed to talk about politics, so we're just going to skirt along the edges, but stay with me. Um, in international politics, do you feel pressed by our culture or by people within our country to be against certain folk on the national scene? I mean, if you're honest, like, yeah. If you're following the news right now, this stuff coming out of North Korea is scary. Not a lot of big fans of North Korea in America right now. Um, and so it's easy to see, be against these peoples from these places on the national scene. But we also see it in national politics, right? <laughs> we just came out of 2016, and the entire election was about who you were against. I heard so few people say, I really like the person I'm voting for. The entire conversation was about the other, the other guy, the other gal, and how much we hate that person. And so there's so much, um, on, even on the national scene, where we would look out and say, yeah, 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 on international level, there are countries who are our enemies. But even closer within our own nation, we would say, we have political enemies right here. Is that a fair assessment of the news cycle? Um, take that down locally. Um, the the teachers and the people who work for the school, uh, the local school board in the room, will know about the battle we just went through locally, right? Should we pass propositions J or C or should we not? And the city was heavily divided on that issue. Um, if you own a, a home, um, that's going to be a significant addition to your tax bill. It just is. On the other side, um, there's the support of the public school systems. And um, I heard conversations um, at a local barbershop <laughs> where people had enemies who lived across the street. If any of you have ever been a part of an HOA, you know how a homeowners association, you got the two or three grumpy people that become the enemies of everybody else in the association. It gets smaller and smaller. We have enemies internationally, nationally, locally, on our own block. Some of us um, have experienced it at work. My click versus your click. Can I get a promotion versus you get a promotion? We define ourselves 
often by what we're against, who we're against. Because there's nothing quite like the desolation of our enemies when we win the election or whenever our click at work gets the recognition, whenever I'm lifted up and the people who oppose me are brought low. Um, those of us who are competitive know the rush that comes with seeing the defeat of the people who were against us. So I want that subject to be in our mind. How do we feel about other people? How do we see the people who are against us, who are our enemies? Because the internal battle over that question is, is the highlight of this passage. Um, and so let's go ahead and go back to the text, and we find Jonah here. Now, for those of you who weren't here, it's, it's been a couple weeks. Remember, um, we just got out of a conversation that Jonah is having with God. And so he preached a message to the city, telling the Ninevites, repent of your sin. If you don't, you'll be destroyed. And amazingly, the Ninevites repent. They put on sackcloth. They sit down in ashes. They, they, they promise, and, and as far as we can tell, it's genuine, um, that they're going to turn from their evil, violent ways. And because of their response to, to his message... God gives them relief. Instead of destroying them, instead of um, causing them to fall as a nation, as a city, he shows them mercy. He relents from destroying them. And, and Jonah hated that. It said in chapter 4, verse 1, that he was extremely displeased, as displeased as he could be, with the fact that the Ninevites were spared. And as we get here into verse 5, which will be up on the screen, we find Jonah still waiting to see if maybe the destruction will come. It reads this way. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so um, commentators on this are a little bit divided. It's unclear whether this is a flashback, as if um, the conversation that just happened before in the preceding few verses was a summary of Jonah's response to the result, or if this represents a conversation where Jonah knows the city's going to be spared, but he's still hoping beyond hope, that just maybe God will change his mind again. Um, so it's, it's unclear which of these it is. But in any case, we find Jonah, after he preaches, going out in the wilderness um, to the east of the city to just sit and watch. Um, Jonah would have been familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how fire fell from the, so uh, the, from the sky and just, just consumed those cities in judgment, and so he's, he's up on a hill and he's waiting for the fireworks. And it says that he went up and he makes a booth for himself, and so if you can picture him kind of going up onto the hillside, and it's, um, th there's not a lot of trees, there's not a lot of vegetation in this part of the world, and so if he's going to sit up there and watch without the elements just kind of beating down on him, he needs some sort of shelter, and he's not sure how long he's going to be there, and so he builds what's called a booth, 
Now, um, Israelites often would build booths. They did it once a year as a part of a festival. And so the construction of these makeshift shelters was a common thing that would have been done as a part of even their religious practice. Um, and generally they would build, it, it's kind of like a, a simple wooden structure with some bows that are kind of hung up. And then they would take leaves that would come over and kind of give them shade. But there's not a lot of vegetation in this area. And so it's likely that Jonah just kind of had a, a wall that he could lean against. And during part of the day, he'd get some shade. But the rest of the day, he wouldn't. We, knew that it, we know that his booth was incomplete because of what we come to later um, in the next part. In verse 6, let's continue. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And so if you picture Jonah falling asleep one night and waking up the next day and a plant has crawled up the side of his booth and it's blossomed beautifully with foliage over his head and he has this nice little miraculous roof. And it says that he was exceedingly glad. Notice it says God appointed the plant. Do you remember that terminology from earlier in the book of Jonah? At one point, God appointed a storm to come across the boat. At another point, God appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah out of the sea so that he might be saved. So this is an indication where God has directly acted just like he had before. He solves his shade problem. It says that it saves him from discomfort. That's the same word that's used for the deliverance of the Ninevites. And so there's a sense that, um, that God is, is saving him. He's delivering him from the heat. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. Contrast that to his displeasure in chapter 4, verse 1. He was exceedingly displeased at the mercy that God showed to the Ninevites. Um, but now he's happy. He's thrilled because he's got a little plant. The story continues in verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So there was a, a turn of fortune here. God appointed the plant to spring up over him, knowing he would be happy about it. And the next morning, he appoints some insects to attack the roots of this plant so that whenever Jonah wakes up, the thing that had covered him the day before is now shriveling up. It's shrinking. The thing that had made him so ridiculously, kind of stupidly happy was now disappearing in front of his eyes. It says in verse 8, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It's better for me to die than to live. And so a God appoints a, a plant, God appoints a worm, and now he appoints a scorching east wind. Have any of you guys ever like been out working on a hot day in the yard or had a project where you're like out in the middle of August and it's, it, is, it is just unbearably hot and a breeze comes through and it's just like angels flew down, right, with palm leaves 
and it's just a slight moment of coolness on your face is just like, oh, this is the best feeling ever, right? We generally associate a breeze, like a wind on a hot day is a good thing, but this wind is a different kind of wind. As it blows on Jonah's face, instead of making him feel cooler, it just drains him. It sucks the life out of him. The heat is maddening. And so we see him, um, he's laying exhausted, delirious. He just stays there, hoping to see the city destroyed. And there's a city with water nearby, shelter. Um, he could have returned back to his own home, been in a comfortable place. But he so wants to see this city destroyed. But he just sits there lays there, dying in the heat, metaphorically in the heat, to the point that he literally wants to die. And he repeats what he had said before, earlier in chapter 4, kill me. I wish I was dead. And so again, we find him in deep despair. But this time, the despair isn't just over the sparing of the Ninevites. Jonah is laying there wishing he could die for a different reason. And we, we find out what that reason is as God reveals it in the next verse, verse 9. It says, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah's mad about the plant. As he lays there wishing that he could die in the scorching heat, he's mad because the plant that had given him shelter, that had given him cool shade, has withered up and died. Why did the plant have to die? It was too young to die. Jonah's having a, an extreme pity party to the point where he's nearly suicidal over this plant. If that seems bizarre, it's because it kind of sort of is. It shows the state of mind that Jonah's in. He so wants the destruction of the city. He so wants to see it with his own eyes that he won't leave his spot. Right? It's like the person who's so excited about the new iPhone that they get there the day before and sit out with a chair, even if it's you know, negative three degrees, only it's you know, out of anger. And he loses his plant. The one thing that gave him comfort is he waited for this glory to appear. And he's brokenhearted. He's mad about the plant. God appointed a plant and a worm and a scorching east wind. And through doing those things, he's drilling down into Jonah's attitude. You see that? Like he's pulling the stuff that's in Jonah's heart out to the surface so that he can talk about it. This seems like a silly illustration, um, but it's what God uses to get right down to the core issues. Jonah responds, he says, I have the right to be angry. And even though it seems childish, think about your own attitudes when your comfort gets disturbed. Anybody ever have a day like this? 
you get uncomfortable and you just get unreasonably angry at the world because you're uncomfortable. I made a confession to my missional community group this week, and this is maybe why I mentioned the, the iPhone earlier. There's this thing called the NES Classic, right? Some of you guys know about it. Discontinued, right? Yeah, maybe. I don't care about it. Um, I've gone on safari three times, like, to other cities, because someone's in stock, right? I'm always just a couple minutes late. And, um, and so I found, I found myself last week driving back home from, from Camdenton, which is where I drove, just fuming. Just fuming. Like, Easter Sunday's coming up, the glorious holiday where we celebrate the goodness of God, and I was fuming in my soul at the powers that would take this toy off the store shelves. Like this thing that I, I objectively do not need. I actually own most of the games on the stupid thing. So if I wanted to play them, I could, I could do that. But I was just fuming. Um, like it messed me up spiritually. Like I was mad at the whole world like three days before Easter over something stupid. So if it seems like Jonah's attitude here is childish, can we all admit that we have cursed the sky for childish reasons at some point in our life? Um, God uses moments like that to draw out our heart. And so he gets Jonah to admit that he feels justified in his anger about this plant. And then he responds in verse 10 and 11, which is going to be up on the screen. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. And also much cattle. Notice that God, in his response, doesn't dispute the discomfort or the pain, or the frustration that comes with Jonah's loss, even though to us it kind of seems silly, right? He doesn't dispute the pity that Jonah feels. Instead, he uses the realness of Jonah's emotions to point out how mixed up he's become. He isn't shaming Jonah for caring about, you know, shelter from the heat. Rather, he's leading him to see things more clearly. You know, he says to Jonah, basically, it took so little for you to become attached to this plant. Two nights. You were full of joy because of it. Right? Right? 
such a small thing. And now your heart is broken over its loss. How do you think I feel about these people? Right? These are human beings with souls that God created. So that whenever they were conceived and grew in the womb of their mother, like it wasn't just matter. Like God put a spirit into flesh and caused life. These people that are immensely valuable and who are lost, they're pitiable. Jonah saw them as enemies from his perspective, but from God's perspective, they were, they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. They didn't know whether they were coming or going. It says, Jonah, your heart's broken over a plant. How do you think I feel about these people that I made? Well, even the cows in this city are worth more than your plant. Should God not be moved by the plight of so many people? So many souls? Should he not be moved even by these animals who are like true victims? Like animals don't get to decide who their owner is, right? You have an abused dog, you don't blame the dog. And there the book ends. We, we get no resolution on, on Jonah's response to God, except the point that he apparently wrote the book that makes him look pretty bad. The focus of the book has been God's mercy to people who are not traditionally known as God's people. To enemies. So let's talk a little bit about application. What do we do with a book like this? What do we do with the story that it tells? Um, we go to the book. Um, the Bible in general, not just as a place for entertainment. Like, we don't, we don't just read Jonah because it's a fun story, although it is kind of a fun story. We go to it to learn about ourselves, about our own relationship with God, who we should be. And some books have a really clear call to us. Go and do this. Like it's, it's just very plain. So whenever Paul writes to a Christian church and he says, love one another, the direct application to us is, we ought, to, we ought to love one another. With a book like Jonah, we have something that's less about a particular action that we as people need to take, like a thing that we need to go out and do, and it's much more about the confrontation of our attitudes. Do you understand what I'm saying? A book like Jonah is meant to baffle us and convict us about the own feelings in our heart. 
how do we view other people? Our enemies, the people against us, you know, the cat people and the Cubs fans. Like, if we're going to talk humorously. But more so, how do we feel about um, the people that have attacked American interests? Like, actual enemies of our nation. How do we feel about people in our communities who have ended up on the wrong side of the law? How do we feel about political opponents who would love to see our nation operate in a way that makes us, like, just grit our teeth? How do we feel as Christians, because as I look out in this room, I know that I believe almost all of us are. How do we feel as Christians about the people who would spit in the face of our God and say that our faith is worthless and dangerous? How do we think about our enemies? How does our perspective, our attitudes on the world compare to God's? You following with me here? I want to point out that a century after this book is written, so about a hundred years, the nation of Assyria that had Nineveh as its capital invades northern Israel and just desolates it and begins to haul off the people of God as slaves into captivity. Nineveh does become the aggressor. In about a hundred years, um, that's the amount of time it would have taken for Jonah's book to be reproduced across the nation of Israel, because like there's no internet, no printing press at the time. It's just enough time to get the book written and produced and distributed, spread all about for the story to start to be known and taught among the people. And then the Ninevites clamp down. You following me? So there are some people that as they first started to become familiar with this story about God's mercy to the Ninevites would have had to have done a double take and be like, you mean the ones that just hauled my cousin into slavery? There would have been people who would have been carried into Nineveh with their scrolls that had the word of the Lord, and as they read them together, trying to cling to some form of their own community as God's people, would have read a book about God's mercy to the very people that had destroyed their families. What do you think they thought of the book of Jonah? Have you thought about that? How do you think they felt about God's mercy to these people that had them at the end of a sword? The book was written to confront their attitudes. And it was written to confront ours.
the people of Israel were judged for their own sin. And they would have been left in Assyria reading the book of Jonah, thinking about their own failures. A messed up world that they've lived in. And the message of the book would have been that God cares for even the worst sinners, even the Ninevites. And that he cares for us, even though we're in the midst of judgment. He cares about the enemies that harm us. And he cares about the innocents in the environment that are caught in the middle. Today, the people of God are scattered throughout the world. They're here in America. They're overseas in Europe. They're in the Middle East. They're in Asia. They're in every part of the world. And many of them are surrounded by people who not only deny their God, but actively hate them. In some places, um, Christians get along fairly well with their neighbors who are not Christians. Um, We are... We are blessed, friends, by how well we get along with those who deny our God. There are Christians in other parts of the world that can't even feel safe when they worship on Palm or Easter Sunday. But we feel, I'm sure, many of us, as if we're surrounded by enemies of our faith. How do we think about them? How do we think about the people that are against us? However you define the us. I want to read two more verses of scripture. Two more sections of scripture. Short ones. To close this out. um, That I want us to reflect on. As we answer that question. The first one's in Ezekiel 18. Verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Friends, if you know Jesus, you were once an enemy of God. And God looked at you and says, I don't take pleasure in the thought that I might judge him, judge her. Rather, I take pleasure whenever you turn and repent. Should we not have the same attitude towards the people who make themselves our enemies? Matthew 5, 43 to 45. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Friends, if it's our desire to be like God, if that's what we want, to be like him, to reflect him, then we have to cultivate pity in our hearts. We have to cultivate compassion towards the people that we dislike the most. We have to cultivate compassion even towards people that we know would harm us if they had the opportunity. Even as the world calls us to grab our pitchforks and chase off against population X, 
we have to cultivate compassion in our hearts towards those people, the same kind of compassion that God showed us when he saved us. As Christians, it should not be in our hearts to seek the destruction of our enemies. Rather, we should want them to repent and join our family, the family of God. May we never be found sitting on a hillside waiting for God to destroy. Let us be the ones in the city seeking the salvation of the people who need God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, you know that we were all your enemies.